Hello, this is Father John Arthur Orr, Associate Pastor at Holy Ghost Catholic Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. This is our 47th installment on Man and Woman, He Created Them, A Theology of the Body. The 133 Catechesis prepared by Pope John Paul II for the five years 1979 through 1984. We are indebted to Professor Michael Waldstein, whose edition we are using Arrows and Ethos. Arrows as the source of the erotic. In the course of our weekly reflections on Christ's statement in the Sermon on the Mount, in which, in reference to the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, he compares concupiscence, the concupiscent look, to adultery committed in the heart. We are attempting to answer the question, do these words only accuse the human heart, or are they before all else an appeal addressed to it? An appeal, obviously, of an ethical character, an appeal that is important and essential for the very ethos of the gospel. We answer that. The words just quoted are, above all, an appeal. At the same time, we are trying to bring our reflections close to the routes taken in this sphere by the consciousness of contemporary human beings. Already in the preceding cycle of our considerations, we mentioned arrows. See Theology of the Body 22.4. This Greek term which passed from mythology to philosophy, then to literary language, and finally into spoken language, is foreign and unknown to biblical language, in contrast to the word ethos. If in the present analyses of biblical text we use the term ethos, which is known to the Septuagint and the New Testament, we do so because of the general meaning it acquired in philosophy and theology, inasmuch as it embraces in its content the complex sphere of good and evil that depend on the human will and are subject to the law of conscience and of the sensibility of the human heart. The term eros, besides being the proper name of a mythological personage, has a philosophical meaning in the writings of Plato that seems to differ from the common meaning and also from the meaning that is commonly attributed to the term in literature. Obviously, we must consider here the vast range of meanings that differ from each other in a nuanced way with regard to the mythical personage as well as the philosophical content, but above all, the somatic or sexual point of view. Taking such a vast range of meanings into account, one should evaluate in an equally nuanced way what relates to eros and is defined as erotic. According to Plato, eros represents the inner power that draws man toward all that is good, true, and beautiful. This attraction indicates, in, the, in this case, the intensity of a subjective act of the human spirit. By contrast, in the common meaning, as also in literature, this attraction seems to be, above all, of a sensual nature. It arouses a reciprocal tendency in both the man and the woman to draw near to each other, to the union of their bodies, the union about which Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 speaks. 
Here we must answer the question whether eros connotes the same meaning that is present in the biblical narrative above all in Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, which doubtless attests to the reciprocal attraction and the perennial call of the human person through masculinity and femininity to that unity of flesh, which at the same time should realize the union communion of persons. The way we understand the concupiscence discussed in the Sermon on the Mount becomes fundamentally important precisely because of this interpretation of Eros, together with its relation with Ethos. It seems that common language considers primarily the meaning of concupiscence that we defined as psychological, and that could also be called sexological, and this on the basis of premises that limit themselves mainly to the naturalistic, somatic, and sensualistic interpretation of human eroticism. The point here is not in any way to diminish the value of scientific research in this field, but to call attention to the danger of reductionism and exclusivism. In the psychological and sexological sense, then, concupiscence indicates the subjective intensity of tending toward the object due to its sexual character, sexual value. This tending has its subjective intensity because of the specific attraction that extends its mastery over man's emotive sphere and involves his bodiliness, his somatic masculinity and femininity. When in the Sermon on the Mount we hear about the concupiscence of the man who looks at a woman to desire her, these words, understood in the psychological-sexological sense, refer to the sphere of phenomena that in common language are precisely called erotic. Within the limits of Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, the issue is only the interior act, while the term erotic refers above all to ways of acting, and reciprocal behavior by man and woman that are an external manifestation proper to such interior acts. Nevertheless, it seems beyond doubt that, if one reasons in this way, one must place the equal sign between erotic and that which derives from desire, and serves to satisfy the very concupiscence of the flesh. Now, if this were so, Christ's words, according to Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, would express a negative judgment about what is erotic, and, when addressed to the human heart, they would at the same time constitute a severe warning against eros, ethos, as an inner power of eros. Yet we have already pointed out that the term eros has many semantic nuances, and so... If one wants to define the relation of the statement in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, to the wide sphere of erotic phenomena, that is, of those actions and reciprocal forms of behavior by which man and woman approach each other and unite so as to be one flesh, see Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, one must Keep in mind this multiplicity of semantic nuances of eros. It seems, in fact, possible that in the sphere of the concept of eros, 
keeping its platonic meaning in mind, one can find room for that ethos, for those ethical and indirectly also theological contents that have been drawn in the course of our analyses from Christ's appeal to the human heart in the Sermon on the Mount. Also, our knowledge of the many semantic nuances of eros, and of that which, in the differentiated experience and description of man in various epochs, and at various points of geographic and cultural longitude and latitude, is defined as erotic, can help us to understand the specific and complex richness of the heart to which Christ appealed in his statement in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. If we suppose that the arrows signifies the inner power that attracts man to the true, the good, and the beautiful, then we also see a road opening up within the sphere of this concept toward what Christ wanted to express in the Sermon on the Mount. While the words of Matthew chapter 5 verses 27 and 28 are an accusation of the human heart, they are at the same time, and even more so, an appeal addressed to it. This appeal is the category proper to the ethos of redemption. The call to what is true, good, and beautiful means at the same time in the ethos of redemption the necessity of overcoming what derives from the threefold concupiscence. It also means the possibility and the necessity of transforming what has been weighed down by the concupiscence of the flesh. Further, if the words of Matthew chapter 5 verses 27 and 28 represent such a call, then this means that in the erotic sphere, eros and ethos do not diverge, are not opposed to each other, but are called to meet in the human heart and to bear fruit in this meaning. What is worthy of the human heart is that the form of the erotic is at the same time the form of ethos, that is, of that which is ethical. This statement is very important for ethos as well as for ethics. In fact, a negative meaning is often linked with the latter concept because ethics brings with it norms, commandments, and also prohibitions. We often have the tendency to consider the words of the Sermon on the Mount about concupiscence, about looking to desire only as a prohibition, a prohibition in the sphere of eros, that is, in the erotic sphere. And we are often content with this understanding alone, without seeking to unveil the truly deep and essential values that this prohibition protects that is, assures. It not only protects them, but makes them accessible and liberates them, provided we learn to open our hearts to them. In the Sermon on the Mount, Christ teaches us this and leads man's heart to these values. And with these words, our Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, concludes his 47th Catechesis, Man and Woman, He Created Them, A Theology of the Body. In order to better appreciate this 47th Catechesis, it's good to remember where we've been so as to know where we are and where we're going. We are in chapter 2 of part 1 of this magnum opus, Theology of the Body, of John Paul II. Christ appeals to the human heart. Christ the Lord did not come to save the, the fish of the sea or the birds of the air, 
of the beast of the land, but human beings. He became like us in all things but sin to save us from ourselves. And he did this not only by his saving death and resurrection, but by his preaching. And Pope John Paul II focused all of his first part of the theology of the body on the words of Christ. And Christ spoke to us, and he speaks to us still through Holy Mother Church, through the sure and certain teaching of his bride, Mother Church, through sacred scripture where we read his call to holiness. Christ appeals to the human heart. Christ appeals to the human heart, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. It's his stump speech, as it were, the heart of his preaching, proclaiming the kingdom of God, calling us to repentance. The Beatitudes, the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, includes Christ's call to a purity of intention and a purity of our gaze, the way we look upon each other. You have heard it said, You shall not commit adultery. I say to you, whoever looks with desire, the disordered desire, the concupiscent desire upon the other, has already committed adultery in the heart. This is the part of the Sermon on the Mount, which Pope John Paul II is focusing our attention on as he reminds us of Christ's appeal to the human heart. Pope John Paul II has spoken to us about the man of concupiscence, that we are a fallen race. While we were created well by the good God who saw all that he had made and said that it was good since the good creation, since God made us male and female, placed in an original state of innocence and justice, we have fallen. One of the sad consequences of original sin is a tendency to sin. And the technical term for that tendency to sin is concupiscence. And Pope John Paul addresses the man of concupiscence in chapter 2, and not only in the second part of chapter 2, but even throughout. Pope John Paul II has spoken to us about commandment and ethos. The commandment, you shall not commit adultery. The ethos, don't even have that desire in your heart. The fourth part of this chapter 2, the heart, accused or called. And ultimately, John Paul II comes down on the called part. The Lord has made an appeal to our hearts. John Paul II asks whether this teaching of Christ is a condemnation of the body. And he reminds us that the Manichaeans, who were dualists, they condemned all that was corporeal, all that was bodily, making an opposition between body and soul, matter and spirit. They would even go to the extent to say, well, there was a God who made all that is visible, all that is tangible, all that is material, and a different God who made all that is spiritual. But this is heresy. This is false teaching. If God hated matter, why did he make so much of it? If God hated matter, why did he become man in Christ? Why did he rise again in his glorified body, which he offered to Thomas, touch the marks in my hands and my side, see that it is not a ghost, but it is I myself. Why did our Lord have breakfast on the beach the morning of the resurrection, but to show his corporality? Our Lord did not come to condemn us, but to redeem us, and part of our being includes our body. A second part of the fourth part of this second chapter is the heart under suspicion. What are we to love? What are we to feel? 
How are we to love? How are we to feel? Can we trust our emotions? But this part, which we have heard today, is eros and ethos. We've already seen ethos earlier, commandment and ethos. You shall not commit adultery. Do not even have that disordered desire. So that's the ethos part. But the eros, E-R-O-S, not A-R-R-O-W-S, eros, relating to sexuality, eros as the source of the erotic, ethos as the inner power of eros. This is the outline of where we've been and where we are today. So now we'll look at some of the finer points in this 47th catechesis, man and woman, he created them a theology of the body. It may be interesting to note that this catechesis was publicly presented by Pope John Paul II in the year 1980. That was 30 years before 2010, some time ago. 1980 was 25 years before Pope Benedict XVI wrote Deus Caritas Est, God is Love. And he addresses Eros, Agape, and Philia in that encyclical Benedict XVI does. So here we see a complementarity between the theology of the body, the great magisterial work of Pope John Paul II, and the magisterium of the current Bishop of Rome, Benedict XVI. Christ's appeal to the human heart is an ethical appeal. It is important, it is essential for the very ethos of the gospel, says Pope John Paul II. Christ has not come to condemn the human heart, but to redeem us, body and soul, whole and entire. And the heart is emblematic of the person, even as we adore and venerate the sacred heart of Jesus because it represents his whole self. Christ appeals to the human heart, to our whole selves, ethically to do good and to avoid evil, repent it if we've done it. This is an ethical appeal, and as such, it is important for the very ethos of the gospel, because part of the gospel is turn away from sin. That's very ethical. It's essential. If we don't turn away from sin, if we don't follow our hearts according to the will of the one who made our hearts and who has redeemed our hearts, we are not following him who is the way, the truth, and the life. We are following a very different path. When we covet our neighbor's wife, when we look with a disordered desire upon another, the Spanish rendition of the Ninth Commandment is much more complete, I think, than the English edition where we just say, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Well, is it okay to covet your neighbor's husband? Is it okay to covet your neighbor's children? No, none of that. That's why the Spanish is all the more beautiful. No hay deseos impuros. Do not have impure desires. It's more congruent with the Sermon on the Mount, which Pope John Paul II is drawing our attention to throughout these catechesis, especially chapter 2 of the first part of the Theology of the Body. Pope John Paul II in this 47th Catechesis reminds us that Eros has a background, a mythological background, a philosophical background, a literary background, but not so much a biblical background, although there have been sexual sins from the beginning. Philosophically, Pope John Paul II draws attention to the writings of the ancient Greek philosopher Plato. While Eros has that background, mythological, philosophical, literary, 
Ethos, on the other hand, has a scriptural background. Twelve times it's mentioned in the New Testament regarding manners and customs. And we know that even in the Old Testament, there are many manners and customs which are laid out, spelled out, made explicit. John Paul II makes a juxtaposition, arrows and ethos, in this third section of the fourth part of chapter 2 of the Theology of the Body, Eros and Ethos. Sexual desire, not a sin, but a disordered sexual desire, that's a sin. So the Ethos determines what is good and what is evil. The Eros, well-ordered, well-acted upon, sexual desire, attraction, not a sin. Part of God's good creation Part of holy marriage, one of the sacraments of service between one man and one woman for life, open to the transmission of life. Ethics presents to our attention norms and commandments and prohibitions. This should be done, this should not be done. Pope John Paul II, in this 47th Catechesis, reminds us of the reality which is the human conscience. The ability to make a judgment, this is good, I should do it, this is evil, I should avoid it. That's part of ethics. And a well-formed, a rightly formed conscience leads us straight to the heart of Jesus. It's a fruit of our nature, our rational nature, to be able to recognize the laws of nature, the natural law, which in its most basic form, do good and avoid evil. The Ten Commandments are a revealed expression of the natural law. In this 47th Catechesis of Pope John Paul II, he draws attention to eros and to what is erotic. So often our world is focused on eroticism or eros only in the disordered sense, and that's a shame, that's a tragedy. Pope John Paul II reminds us that the relationship between desire attending toward an attraction, all represented by the one term, eros. And again, we see here Pope John Paul II's philological background, how he is a student of words. Words mean things. And it's important for us who are followers of Jesus Christ, who is the Word made flesh, who is the incarnate Word, who is the eternal Word of the Eternal Father, We know how important words are. Pope John Paul II, in this 47th Catechesis, reminds us, as he has so often before, and will continue to remind us, of the perennial call, that is, a call from the beginning, and the reciprocal attraction of masculine and feminine, of man for woman and woman for man. Pope John Paul II does not say or draw the conclusion, therefore, an attraction or a tending toward or a desire for man for man or a woman for woman is not a perennial call, but one could very easily make that deduction. It would not be stretching very far, if at all, from his sure and certain teaching here. The way we understand concupiscence, John Paul teaches, discussed in the Sermon on the Mount, becomes fundamentally important precisely because of this interpretation of eros together with its relation with ethos. Again, even though this is not the section, the major part on concupiscence, the man of concupiscence, the man who has a tendency to sin, and all of us are that man, it's fundamentally important 
because while there are disordered sexual attraction, heterosexual or homosexual alike, not all attraction or tending toward, not all desires are disordered. And this is very important, fundamentally important, Pope John Paul II points out. Again, when Pope John Paul II speaks about common language, he shows his philological background, his expertise in the meaning of words and the usage of words. Common language considers primarily the psychological, sexological meaning of concupiscence, the tendency to sin, thereby limiting to a naturalistic, b somatic, c sensualistic, interpretations of human eroticism. Professor Waldstein did not identify Theology of the Body 43, 3, and 4 as the reference, but that's where Pope John Paul II earlier spoke about the psychological, sexological meaning of concupiscence. What does it mean to say that we have limited our interpretation of human eroticism to the naturalistic? Well, when people say we're just animals, to limit our interpretation of human eroticism to the somatic? Well, we're just bodily, flesh and blood, forgetting the soul. Sensualistic, if it feels good, do it. These are all truncation of the interpretation of human eroticism. Remember, eros, the erotic, the tending toward, the attraction, the desire. And we're not just brute animals. We're not just flesh and blood. We're not just sensory beings able to enjoy pleasure or be repulsed by pain. We're made in the image and likeness of God, who is love, to whom we are naturally attracted, to whom we naturally tend toward. Concupiscence, the tendency to sin, and specifically the tendency to sin with the body, this is what truncates, this is what short circuits our understanding of eroticism. Pope John Paul II in this 47th Catechesis continues about eros, the erotic, as ways of acting, reciprocal behavior by man and woman that are an external manifestation proper to such interior acts. Again, the Holy Father here does not specify the reciprocal behavior between a man and a man or a woman and a woman, but we can draw the conclusion we can recognize that here he is saying it would be a false eroticism if it were that way, that it is not proper, it's anti-erotic, it's a disordered eros, a disordered attraction, a disordered tending toward. The Holy Father does not use the phrase homoerotic here, but you can see it being the contrawise. Eros is that inner power that attracts to the true, the good, and the beautiful, and the nuptial meaning of the body is true, is good, is beautiful. The same-sex attraction, so-called, is true in the sense that it is a yielding to the concupiscence of the flesh, even as heterosexual copulation, apart from holy marriage, the sacrament, the generative and unitive reality, is also disordered. When Pope John Paul II identifies the good, the true, the beautiful, in philosophical parlance, these have been recognized as the transcendentals. What is good is true, what is true is good, and both are beautiful. And they all have their origin, and they all have their end in God. 
as do we. If Pope John Paul II has spent so much time in putting together and presenting these conferences on the theology of the body, and we ourselves have spent so much time reading and listening and going over them, it's because we know the truth will set us free. The truth about God, the truth about ourselves, all of which we are able to discern in sacred scripture and the sure and certain teaching of Mother Church. Christ has appealed to our hearts to be pure of heart. May we heed his call by his grace to his glory and our sanctification. Until next time, God bless you.